All right, team, let me tell you about NewZest, clean plant-based nutrition products to meet the demands of modern life. And I'm super excited to announce that they are a sponsor of Wikipedia. With over a decade of experience and a presence in more than 20 countries worldwide, NewZest has emerged as a leader in providing innovative solutions for those seeking healthier and more sustainable choices. In a world where people are looking for clean labels, easily digestible ingredients, and allergen-free options, NewZest delivers and totally has you covered. Clean Lean Protein is a plant-based protein powder and contains all nine essential amino acids. It encourages recovery, vitality, muscle repair, and growth, and helps you hit your protein requirements, which you know I am all about. One of my favorite products is their Good Green Vitality. It's the gold standard in multi-nutrients. It's designed to make complex nutrition simple. The Super Blend is carefully formulated to address all aspects of health. 75 ingredients working together to support everything from digestion, immunity and healthy aging to stress, energy and cognition in one daily serve. Grab yours today, guys, with a sweet 20% discount for being a listener of the show with the code Wikipedia over at their website. And we will pop a link in the show notes for you to be able to do that. All right, now back to the show. Welcome. Hi. I'm Mickey, and this is Wikipedia, where I sit down and chat to doctors, professors, athletes, practitioners, and experts in their fields related to health, nutrition, fitness, and well-being. And I'm delighted that you're here. Hey everyone, it's Mickey here. You're listening to Wikipedia, and this week on the podcast, I speak to Leighton Phillips, founder of the world-leading low-carb high-fat nutrition company that supports endurance performance, S-Fuels. So on today's podcast, Leighton and I discuss the development of S-Fuels, which happened when Leighton was searching for, but not being able to find, products that weren't totally full of sugar, and how S-Fuels have, since 2016, continued to evolve the product based on feedback from the likes of um, high-performing athletes and brainiacs, Dr. Dan Plews, and Zach Bitter, who has been on the show before and has his own very successful podcast, Human Performance Outliers, and is just generally a very successful person, athlete all around. And how they've evolved the product based on feedback from these guys and more to help endurance athletes optimize their health and performance, because you can do both. Leighton and I also discuss high carb intakes recommended by other sports nutrition companies, why this isn't ideal in all scenarios, and why S-Fuels has adopted a fuel for the work required approach, helping athletes both upregulate fat oxidation and provide carbs when required. We also discuss the different product offerings from S-Fuels and we touch on ingredients that you will see in the literature as supporting both fat oxidation and performance and these are making their way to the S-Fuels range. So this is a great episode for anyone interested in sports nutrition, whether you lean the low carbohydrate route or not actually because you don't have to be low carb to get the benefits of products like S-Fuels. 
So, Leighton Phillips studied both naturopathy and computer science before starting S-Fuels in 2016, while working in Hong Kong and looking for a product to help reduce inflammation that occurred through both his training and racing, as it was hampering his recovery. And this then started S-Fuels, which was one energy bar and has grown into a portfolio of everyday low-carb keto food and drink products that support enhanced fat oxidation training and a product set and protocol for high-intensity interval training and racing. So there's a range of different products that S-Fuels has and you will find all of these listed on the S-Fuels website which is sfuelsgolonger.com and they all support the right fuel, right time approach, matching both aerobic and anaerobic intensity. So check out the website link that I have in the show notes. Just a reminder though, the best way to support the podcast is to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast listening platform. That increases the visibility of the podcast out there and amongst literally thousands of other podcasts. So more people get the opportunity to learn from the guests that I have on the show, like Leighton Phillips. So, uh... Leighton Phillips from S Fields. So good to finally get this opportunity to chat to you. Now, first of all, um, completely unrelated to what we will discuss, uh, what's the weather like in North Carolina right now? So yeah, actually I just I just swam outside, so it's 70 this afternoon, but we had it well, so I'm talking uh Fahrenheit. So like um, you know, 20s uh Celsius. But we had it down to zero twice already, uh, like in this shift over um, uh, transition of the season. So, yeah, uh, it's that classic kind of variable time of the year. Um, the colors are magic. It's reds and golden yellows and it's magic. Yeah. Uh, oh, that sounds great. And you've just been at Havelina 100, haven't you? That was only a few weeks ago, am I right? Yeah, well, Zach was down there. Uh, Zach raced it this year. Uh, Nicole, his wife, uh, has done it a number of times. So, yeah, I was actually in Catalina last weekend, uh, yeah. um, which is another ultra series. It's in California. Havelina's in Arizona. So, yeah, so, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so just part of your role, and, and I know that we're going to get into it, but it, does it sort of necessitate you um, tropesing around the different um, trail run series and supporting athletes and, of course, getting people more familiar with the East Fuels brand and, and things like that? Yeah, and Nicole, uh, who runs the operations and general management of the business, does a lot of the, yeah, what you just said. Um, increasingly, though, we've got a lot of coaches and I would say pro slash um, like elite age groupers, Mickey, that are kind of wanting to dial in sharper like you have to give a guidance when you have products like this that is a generalization yeah. and then you need to dial in per athlete really yeah yeah you do and you know what I was reflecting on this this morning Leighton when I was just thinking about our podcast is that there are so many sports nutrition products out there on the market yet I haven't seen anything close to S-Fuels actually over the last few years even with the you've got the hydrogels, you've got different sort of mixes, you've got the, I don't know if you remember Hammer Nutrition, I don't even know if they yeah. still exist, but you know that was almost as, as close to what you guys have produced, but this is still very much out, um, very left field of what other people would uh, or other um, companies are doing. So I'm yeah. really 
intrigued to understand how you sort of reach the place that you have, even like sort of starting at the beginning. Well, I think a lot of, you know, companies in this space, whether it's shoes, like even Hoka and others, like it, it, it came about usually from athletes that had some issues. Right. Um, and initially when we were, you know, thinking about, um, we weren't even really thinking about a product. I mean, we, we were athletes like all of us and, you know, we all had different issues. And at the time, the the predominant issue, we were in Hong Kong for nine years. It's just a massive trail running endurance segment there. And, uh, we were doing a number hundred K and, you know, 70 K 50 milers. And just the, I thought it was just me that was having these gut problems. And the more I got into it, I found out that it was just a very common thing. Uh, you know, I did cross country at school. I did triathlon as as a teenager. I went and studied naturopathic medicine. So I think with that background and then kind of observing this, I felt like, hey, we can do better here. But at that point, it wasn't so much, Mickey, about directly creating something that would like, you know, cause and effect of you take it and you have a performance outcome. It was more about dealing with this issue that just a ton of athletes are still having today, which is gut distress. Yeah. And like, so if you look and I know you'll know this, but just for the listeners, like I believe the stats are as high as like 86% of endurance athletes will experience a GI problem either in training or worse in their racing, which um, is actually is such a limiting factor for them to be able to perform the way that they've trained. Yeah, it's massive. And it's still the number one reason for not finishing these races for, you know, age groupers. I came off uh, calls today with professional runners and you would assume that, hey, professional runner, you get all of the direction and guidance and what have you. They still have the problem. Um, and, and this is in the era of hydrogels. And I'm not going to take negative shots at, at other companies, but um, it's not solved. Yeah. And um, just a lot of it is to do with just the raw um, intake of, you know, glycogenic um, formats. And, you know, they clearly have a reaction in the gut, some of them more so than others. And, yeah, we can chat through that. Yeah. What year was it when you sort of started thinking there's got to be another solution? So when was that? Yeah, 2018. Um, well, 17, we were... <laughs> Uh, my kids would tell you, like, we were literally playing around in the kitchen and um, I, with stuff and take them out on the trails. And if you want, if you want really non-sugar-coated feedback, just ask your kids what they think <laughs> about it. So, um, so we were playing around then, but then we, we worked with some labs in California on really, you know, bench testing, lab testing. And then ultimately, we worked with Dan on his campaign into the 2018 Kona Man. Um, and at that point, it, you know, it was kind of one of the interesting comments we got from Bob Babbitt when he first started talking to us is, you know, why did you ever create a training product before you created a racing product? Because he's never seen a nutrition company in the sport do that in 30 years. And the reason was, is the whole basis of what we were creating was not really about, you know, just on race day, calories in, calories out. We were looking at nutrition that would train the metabolism. And that's where we started. And um, we built that um, with Dan and, you know, obviously 2018, we executed with him. Uh, he executed with us is the better way to say it um, <laughs> on the day. And uh, we were there and it was just an awesome day. But um, that's where it all started, you know, and um, done a ton of development since then. We've just put some patent uh, filings in and um, 
you know, just, I would say we're still learning though. Like there's just a lot of innovation opportunity in this space. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree. Now, fun fact. So prior to S fuels, and in fact, not just prior to S fuels, cause at the moment it's pretty tricky for us here to get your product, um, which I'm hoping is going to change at some point, but I was telling clients to use MCT, BCAAs and put salt in a, in a <laughs> thing. And then you could imagine my delight. And I don't know where I saw it. And it might have, <laughs> I'm wondering whether you, did you have a stand at Kona 2018 as well? I absolutely did. Yeah. And I, so I came across it and of course I knew Dan and I knew that he was sort of playing around. I'm like, oh, oh, okay. Well, there are <laughs> products that, that do that. But how did you come to the initial formulation? So did you come from a low carb approach yourself, Leighton, or it wasn't about your usual diet that sort of got you thinking about this? Who were the people that you looked to in order to sort of start thinking about how to produce this product? Yeah. And like most athletes, like I, I grew up during the era of, you know, carbohydrate fests and, you know, carb loading and everything that goes with that. So we all grew up with that. Um, and so, and then, yeah, my training was, you know, more naturopathic, like holistic food based. Let me just put it that way. I did six years of that in Australia. Um, but, you know, I would say probably when I started researching, the, the name I would say that came up more often was probably Tim Noakes. Um, and it wasn't, it, like he had done a lot of work actually on hydration. And the issue that I was observing in Hong Kong um, there was the gut issue. And then it's just a very humid environment there. And there was a lot of, um, extremity swelling like fingers and, and, and feet. And then as a function of that blistering. And so I was kind of looking at it through two lenses. So we started looking at, you know, well, what is high caloric, um, you know, ingredients, what is functional on the gut? Um, and at the same time is non-glycogenic, meaning not glucose based in, in the spirit of, cause what we were really trying to look for is calories that wouldn't trick, would not trigger an insulin response. So that wouldn't blunt fat oxidation. Yeah. And we landed on MCT, but I would say it was three years later. Like I said, initially it was more for those issues that we we're dealing with, but it wasn't until several years later that we got way more specific on which specific MCTs and in what formats and bound to what, um, you know, we talk about fats, we talk about carbohydrates, but they're very high level references. There's a lot of specificity when you get down into the weeds and this stuff. Sure thing. And I remember when I studied nutrition way back in the nineties, can, can, can you believe that? No. Same here. Crazy. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> um, and I remember that um, doing sports nutrition as, as, uh, as, as one of my papers and us discussing the gels that were out at the time that had MCT in them. And they also, I, I, I want to say that they had MCT and glucose, but I might be wrong about that because it was some time ago. And the research at the time showed that there was sort of significant GI distress from the studies that had done. So people had almost sort of like, um, thought, well, we've you know done that, that didn't work and sort of moved on, but there were specific problems with some of the research as I understand it. Well, a few things, um, and you see this a lot, of course, in the nutrition industry, unfortunately, and also in the herbal medicine industry is, um, you know, uh, references are made to ingredients, but not the full disclosure happens. And you'll find that a lot of those MCTs in the early days were bound to a maltodextrin 
so any reference to maltodextrin itself is not a total evil thing, but in the spirit of if you're trying to uplift fat oxidation, it's totally in, inverse to that. It's going to stop that. That's the first point. And then the second point was, um, and this was actually quite recent research, very recent research, and that is that it was thought that MCTs, it's true that it comes through the gut membrane without, you know, if you will, active transport, like, um, or like a long chain triglyceride, which has to come out of the gut through the liver effectively, but it actually goes through the lymphatics before it ultimately gets into the blood supply. So it's almost useless in a sport context. The medium chain triglycerides do come into the blood faster, but it was thought that in at a cellular level, whether it's liver, kidney, muscle, heart, or what have you, that it also didn't need a transporter. And it's since been found that that's not the case at all. It is true in the liver that it can get oxidized and release ATP and more specifically uh, become very ketogenic. But outside of the liver, almost, you know, particularly where it matters from a sports context, the heart and skeletal muscle tissue, it absolutely needs carnitine like a long chain fatty acid to transport across the membrane. That's quite new research. And that would explain a ton of cases where they didn't see any... Um, if you will, oxidative um, support as a substrate, as a fuel. Yeah. And so carnitine, you know, I often see this being sort of talked about in the keto low-carb space and, and of course, people have L-carnitine capsules. Now, I don't know, like you obviously, Don D'Agostino is someone you're familiar with and I chatted to him about his sort of protocols and supplements and he uses three to four grams of L-carnitine. Yeah. Now, this is actually a slight tangent, but it just got me thinking, um, to help upregulate that fat oxidation. So, is, so we're thinking that if you are utilizing MCT, that actually having a source of L-carnitine is going to help us um, help that sort of delivery of that to the working muscles and, and things like that? Yeah. Um, actually, there was years of studies on L-carnitine that were unsuccessful. And most of the reason for that was that the dose, and this is just, again, classical clinical nutrition. If you get the dose wrong or the duration wrong, it's not overly effective. And that's exactly what was happening on one side of the equation, um, meaning too low a dose and not for long enough. Um, that dosage you just called out there with what he's using is what they, it is in the two to three grams per day range. And it, it literally takes several months before you see, you can see about a 20% increase in fat oxidation. Once you do, uh, effective muscle loading of, of L-carnitine, you can, they, they found that, uh, combining caffeine and L-carnitine together further increases the carnitine load loading into the muscle. Um, and then the other piece is, you know, you can do this two ways, but as you know, um, obviously insulin is one thing that can open up a number of the channels from the circulatory system into the muscle cell. The other way to open those channels up, of course, is exercise. So by taking the L-carnitine with exercise, it's in that period that those channels can support, you know, whether it's L-carnitine, whether it's other um, amino acids to come into the muscle. So that's part of the reason why we actually reformulated one of our products, uh, a primed product, which is really now a much higher dose L-carnitine with caffeine for exactly that. Amazing. That functional reason. And that is, yeah. that would be your pre-workout type fuel that you would have bef 
prior to going on the trails or your longer sort of yeah. positions? It's, it's, it, I mean, it's quite literal when we call it primed. It is really a priming function. Um, and there's two aspects to this, of course, with caffeine, um, you know, when we take that coffee tea, like it's religiously taken around the world, the cognitive function, of course, is just more like 0.5 of a milligram per kilogram body weight to get that effect. But in a fat oxidation context, whether that's in training or racing, you really need to be in the three milligrams per kilogram of body weight to get the up, the, the, the caffeine effect. So what does that mean? Well, in training, probably less so, meaning that in endurance training in particular, you're just going to be doing zone two work, which is going to naturally, you know, upregulate fat oxidation by the fact that you're in zone two most of the time. But in racing, uh, it's quite a protocol needed by protocol. I mean, just a method. And that means the hour before the race start is to begin the caffeine loading. And really, you know, if it's a, if it's a fast marathon, meaning a professional marathon in the two and a half hour space and less and a little more, of course, you know, it's, it's really in that first 30 minutes, you've got a dose high on caffeine. So the bulk of the race, you're having the benefit of that as opposed to drip feed it in small doses right across a race. It has about a half-life of six hours, caffeine. So most marathons, um, you know, Olympic distance triathlons, that's fine. When you start getting into 50K, 50-mile, 100-mile, and full Ironmans, you probably need to be thinking also about a second dose out of that five- to six-hour spot in the spirit of maintaining the upregulation. Yeah, and have you had athletes sort of test that Leighton, in terms of like in their protocols and, and things like that? Because I know you've done some sort of performance validation projects, obviously, and Dan is the, the like great example of that, but you've had other athletes do, do these as well. Yeah. Um, we started Primed really with uh, Hayden, Hayden Wild, uh, who's the star in your country. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, he just keeps, it's like, is there nothing that Hayden can't do? <laughs> like, it's, it's crazy. He's a superhuman, I think. Yeah. I think he's got something that not, a, a bunch of us don't have. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, so, yeah, we went on these, you, you mentioned there, these performance validation projects. So we, we, we started with Dan and then that was really to kind of validate, if you will, this concept of glycogen retention. And the way we really wanted to understand that is in the marathon part of, in his case, an Ironman, um, that the... Uh, pace kilometer, you know, minutes per kilometer didn't fade off through the marathon. And, and you can look at his splits and see that. So that was the first test. We then went and did a, oh, so COVID came along. So then the hundred mile testing we did with Zach Bitter was on the treadmill world record and then the US nationals, which he won. And that was more to kind of validate, well, is this whole theory real or it breaks down when you go from say a four to eight hour race to a 12 hour plus race. And we, we feel like we validated that, but then back to Hayden, we went right back to the other side, if you will, of endurance sport and looked at Olympic distance, which is, you know, generally two hours and less, uh, super league, which is even shorter, you know, more intense duration. So what we were testing for there is, uh, two things. One is that's when we got into developing different starch formats for vi like 90% of VO2 max intensity type exercise. Um, and also we started testing our caffeine there. 
And lastly, we were testing gastric emptying time, like speed of getting through the um, the stomach. Not yes, yeah, the stomach yeah. basically. Yeah. Yeah. And Leighton, I find it, it's so the, I mean, obviously the athletes you work with are high um, level elite athletes, which as you noted with Hayden, like there is just something different about those athletes. Right. And so I see, and this is related to the carbohydrate research, like you're continued to come out with these studies suggesting that you can push carbohydrate as high as 120 grams an hour and get these sort of performance benefits, albeit over the short term, I see that like even in the uh, long trials, they are like two to three hours. So you just don't know what happens beyond that. But also in the back of my mind, when I read these these studies, I'm like, how applicable is this to the age grouper? Like, because so many age groupers I see, like they, um, you know, they come to me and they're like, you know, I'm pushing 75 to 90 grams of carbs an hour and I'm just having these gut related issues. And I'm just thinking that there is a difference between the two so first I'd like to get your opinion on that but equally I'd like you to like is this something that we need to be mindful of with your products because you're doing the validation on the like the super elite I think there's three aspects there Mickey like um first aspect would be and and Dan has written a few papers on this more recently and that is just and actually it's he's really commentating on some of the earlier work that Juk and Drop and others did which was calling out this ceiling, if you will, for glucose of about a gram a minute or 60 grams an hour. Yeah. And then you can add fructose on top of that that can give you uh, an incremental on top of that again. Now, at that point, it's really a ceiling. So I think you've got to delineate between you know training gut transition, meaning absorption, but the oxidation side is really quite a, a capped um, amount per hour. Uh, so this um, taking of you know 100 120 grams an hour it it just doesn't make sense at that level. Now let's assume just for a second though that some superhuman athlete and maybe it exists they can do all of that. Well, the flip side of all of that, of course, though, is that remember that every time you increase uh, sugar intake, you're increasing you know the oxidation of that, and once one of the metabolites, of course, of of sugar and glucose is lactate. So um, you can see this in charts. I could show you the charts where you see an athlete who is highly glucose dependent or carbohydrate dependent. And you see this rapid crash, if you will, of use of fat as fuel as the intensity ramps, rapid rise of carbohydrate. Again, that would be fine if it's a two-hour race. But you get into a three, four hour race where you've exhausted liver and, and, and muscle glycogen. Well, now it comes down to your ability to take all that in. Well, let's say you could take it in. Well, now you've got to look at what happens to lactate. And you'll see on those same athletes, the lactate will just dramatically go up. So in those athletes, their performance is not an outcome so much of running out of fuel. Their performance degradation is a function of the lactate they're producing. Now, lactate itself is a substrate, is a fuel. But that itself needs training, and the training of that happens in aerobic. Uh, so there's two aspects here. There is the buffering of lactate, which absolutely happens at high intensity training, but the transport and shuttling from um, you know high twitch fibers, slow twitch fibers, or type one, type two, uh, that training efficiency of that happens in aerobic zone two work, um, and it gets blunted with the likes of fructose and gl glucose. So. I and then so let's say even if that could happen, then you get into the gut issue, um, which 
It's very debatable looking at the research, whether they actually are training the gut. It's, 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 you could squint and maybe cut to that conclusion. Um, and then the last thing I would say is in, uh, I think it was March, probably one of the most esteemed group of researchers I've seen came together on a study. Dom was part of that study. Uh, Tim Noakes was part of that study. They looked at, um, a full crossover blind study where they had, in fact, these were middle-aged 800-meter runners, and they switched them from a high-carbohydrate to a lower-carbohydrate test. And you know, aside from the fact that, which was a really interesting finding, that they were still burning uh, uh, 80%, uh, sorry, they were still burning uh, over a gram of fat at 80% of the VO2 max, which was, it's not classic textbook understanding. But what they did when they did the crossover, those athletes that moved from that low carb to high carb, 30% of them in four weeks, they were all running 24 by 7 CGMs on their arm, uh, like con continuous glucose monitors. And um, they were, 30% uh, of them had all the signs of prediabetes uh, in four weeks. Yeah. Yeah. And I, in so, fact, talked to Philip Prinz, who was one of the authors of that study. Yes. He was one of the lead authors. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's something which um, is not, I mean, 30%, people might go, well, only 30%. But, you know, if you're a coach and you've got 36 athletes, that's like 12 of them sort of in that sort of camp, right? Like that's a significant um, a number of, of athletes. I mean, if, co if a coach understands this, there's kind of a level of accountability that should happen on if you're driving people to that outcome, right? Um, so it's a good question. Who's accountable for that? Yeah. But then later on the other, on the other um, hand, though, do you, like, what are your comments on the, the applicability of the products for the age group or athlete, for your products? Like, so, you know, um, yeah, so that second part of that question. I mean, don't get us wrong. I mean, we, we are, you know, when we started, we were absolutely, um, we had one product and it was our training product. And by nature of what we were building, it was just low carb. It had no carbohydrate in it. Um, that wasn't our strategy. We, we had to get started somewhere. but. Our strategy, we refer to this right fuel, right time construct. And what that means is as you increase intensities, you absolutely use more carbohydrate. That's how the body functions. So uh, in a race con context, you know, our guidance is that 60-gram ceiling. Um, uh, and what we would say is that in training where, you know, in an endurance context, the bulk of your volume is still done in zone two uh, you know, intensity, but it's really important, um, not just from a just classic, you know, building high intensity performance, but in the spirit of metabolism, if you were to do just a ketogenic approach, which is not what we're advocating at all, but if you were to do that, you would see that the last enzymatic reaction of carbohydrate oxidation, which is the PDH enzyme, you would see that if you just went ketogenic, you would see that begin to lower and your ability to actually have really efficient carbohydrate oxidation would, would become weaker. So what's important is that in training, there is clearly a you know, you know, strong segment of high-intensity zone 4, zone 5 work that includes carbohydrate to ensure that that enzyme remains like anything in the body. You can underuse it, you can overuse it, you can abuse it. 
right? And I think this is a case where it's there for a reason. It switches on and it's meant to provide energy at those higher intensities. So we still advocate it, uh, absolutely. And a 60 grams an hour is generally the guidance we give. Yeah, and that's pretty much in line with where I suggest people are because a lot of the time we work from a nutrition space of building their efficiency and their flexibility so they've got that ability to to burn fat. Like, Were you familiar with Bob Sieberhall's work when you started sort of looking more into this, Leighton? Yeah, and I mean, even back in, I guess it was the 90s, um, there was the Sears work of you know, zone diets and things like that. And, um, I, I, you know, I was more in clinical nutrition then, and we were showing there in a clinical stance just to try and educate customers that even if you took the most complex of carbohydrates and you chewed it for long enough, and then you take a, a urine glucose strip and put it in your mouth, you will see before it's even left the mouth that there's full of glucose. So, you know, people need to get real, there's just a ton of education needed. And I would say even more so in this part of the world than in Australia, Europe, New Zealand, are, are way more ahead that I find in the US and really understanding some of these core principles of, of it. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you're not like, because I think a lot of people might look at S-Fuels and think it's just for those low carb athletes. Is that, how would you sort of respond to that? Like, is that how you are framing it or? positioning it no i mean i don't blame them because that's kind of where we started at a product level um i think if anyone spends just 10 minutes looking at our products looking at our method and what we guide you'll see that we are the balance between you know zone two fat oxidation efficiency training and as you get into zone four, zone five, workout space, all of our products, they have carbohydrate. What they don't have is fructose in training uh, because we've already seen three studies showing the detraining effects of fructose uh, to aerobic. It's, most of it's mitochondri mitochondrial inefficiency that it, uh, fructose intake uh, is having an effect on the mitochondria. Um, so we avoid that in all of our uh, racing and, you know, high intensity training products, we will produce, um, you know, we have some developments going on right now, a product that is explicitly for highest intensity racing, not training that will have a little fructose. Um, and that's just because at that intensity, it's actually a fairly efficient substrate and you know if the name of the game is at that point in time is to go as fast as you possibly can it it, it warrants being there and you know hence it's in fruits and what have you but everyday consumption of that in training no everyday consumption of that in diet no um, and again i want to delineate between you know a very complex natural whole food is very different than an extracted you know high fructose corn syrup so Leighton, can you just describe that a little bit more? So if we had, so for example, taking fructose in our sports nutrition products um, in training, does that decrease the efficiency of our mitochondria? Yeah, so that was, um, let me think, as 2017, was, uh, first study is looking at over a four-week period, you know, fructose, and that was just looking at a diet, and they looked at the gene expression um, of what happened at the skeletal muscle um, in, in that, that case, it was men. There was a second study that was looking at mitochondrial dysfunction as a function of 
and this again was specific to skeletal muscle. Um, and most of it was in that particular study was calling out oxidative stress that fructose was creating. The third study was really interesting. I think this was around the 2021 or maybe, maybe it was a little earlier than that. Um, but it was specifically looking at impairing the expression of genes involved in the adaptive response to exercise. So, you know, as we begin to in through all different forms of training routines, stress different parts of the metabolism that typical aerobic training function which is you know mitochondrial density capillary density um mitochondrial number uh glucose and fatty acid transport all of those things became uh or were more dysfunctional by having fructose uh in um in the uh, in the training formulas and um i think dan just sent me another paper this last week um that there's another study out there showing similar uh comments so how does this then how do we reconcile that information with the fact that fructose is is recommended to help push that carbohydrate um intake up and i know that sounds like a ridiculous question but i know that if i was listening to this podcast i'd be wondering that as well yeah, I mean, so again, just back to in the raw context of what is the maximum substrate intake I can have come into the body. It is true that fructose is incremental on top of glucose. They're, they're transported through the gut with different transporters. They're transported into the muscle cell with different uh, transporters. GLUT5 in the case of fructose, GLUT4 in the case of, um, of uh, glucose. Um, but I, what we're, what we're then that's, that's true, but then you've got to look at there's metabolites that come out of the oxidation of these different substances. And those metabolites, um, all have implications. They can have sensing functions. They can sense the body to do different things. They can be oxidative in the term of stress, et cetera. Um, and that's, that's usually what's like, um, you know, blind eye given to, to that side of the equation. Um, but increasingly we're finding that, um, again, look, Mickey, I think if, if it was a function where you took it as a whole food and you took it in a smaller dose, you probably wouldn't see any of this. But to your point, when you start talking a hundred grams an hour, like this is medicine. This yeah. is, <laughs> yeah, because that's a thing, right? It's the, it's a, it's a dosing thing. Um, as much as, right. uh, as anything. I just, I had, I had a discussion today with a pro athlete and there's a really fair question that the coach gave me. He said, well, well, wouldn't you just see these upregulations of fat oxidation just by training alone? Mm. And, and the answer is you do see it. Absolutely. But I said, I've got pro athletes go through the labs and you look at their data. And these are people that have won world championships and their fat oxidation levels are hopeless and they wonder why they can be successful in 70.3 and when they get to Ironman they get halfway into the run and everything just starts collapsing. Oh, right? Layden, you I 100% understand that because right back in like sort of 2012 maybe or 2011 at AUT when we were looking at athletes come through the lab like good athletes they were just complete sugar burners and often what right. I see is is a couple of arguments is that one there that so the the what the coach just sort of um, asked you but also I I see um, other people saying that we don't need to work on metabolic flexibility because humans are born metabolically flexible and whilst it's true we're born metabolically flexible 
the environment around us just sort of beats it out of us, you know, so you just can't rely on that. And if you're right, if anyone has issues with sort of going the distance, then fat oxidation and efficiency and flexibility is where I always sort of have my mind at. Yeah, it's it's highly trainable, Mickey. Like there was a study, I think, 2017 also where uh, Franzen looked at, um, if you will, uh, the most determinant factors of performance outcomes in Ironman and fat oxidation, VO2 max were the two most determinant factors of performance outcomes. And then there was another study which, you know, since that 2017 period, I just think there's been a lot of technology advancement on testing, um, like uh, metabolic testing, particularly in metabolomics, where they're looking at uh, not just in a lab, but they take effectively the lab onto the race field. And they did this study this this year in August, the study was published and it was on um, one of the UCI cycling teams that was in the middle of the grand tour that all the testing happened. And what they showed again was that the most determinant factor of the highest performing athletes was um, all of the metabolites of uh, fat oxidation. Um, and it's a fascinating study because um, it's it's not it's not artificial lab like it's it's a seven day race you know hundred to two hundred kilometers a day a lot of elevation change and where where the athlete shined was when the intensity got the most not because they were able to crunch more carb or fat at that time, but they had preserved glycogen and had produced least lactate. So when it come to the most intense time of the race, they could punch through that, right? It's, it's really interesting. Yeah, it's, so I totally agree. It's fascinating. And what I find quite exciting is, Leighton, you come from that trail running background right? And as you were mentioning, living in Hong Kong, it was like a Mecca, which by the way, I wasn't aware of just because I wouldn't know stuff like that, but this <laughs> makes me excited for Hong Kong. Um, and the ability to sort of utilize a product over several hours. I mean, you will ha- people will have to try it to see whether it sits well for them, yeah. but um, to like takes a thinking out of it because you've got a lot of things in it. So they don't have to worry about getting this, you know, carbohydrate from this source and then putting MCT in themselves. One question, this is a bit of a selfish one, but every time my husband takes MCT, I accidentally put MCT powder in, in something. He vomits. What's that about? I don't know. I mean, um, there is, uh, it's a nut, remember, um, coconut is a nut and there is absolutely a percentage of the popula- population that, uh, have a reaction, of course, to, you know, nuts period. Um, and I was surprised that cause I, I, not that I had a, a long time in clinical practice, but I had a few years, but I'd never put two and two together to think of coconut as a nut in the same way of peanuts and other classic allergens. Um, but it, there is a very real, even, I've seen athletes, uh, sorry, I've seen um, just people uh, have reactions to the coconut oil and in a, in a skin reaction, not topical, but as they ingest it, they, they come out in a rash. So look, it, pretty much anything um, that people take, there's potentially a percentage of the population that will have a reaction. Um, but I would say though, that like I said earlier, it's worthwhile double clicking on if it's a powder, what they bound it yes. to. And there's cheap sugars and maltodextrins that you can find uh, coconut And actually, to. as you were talking, I was thinking about that because he usually does a bulletproof with coconut oil, no problem, which is – so I'm actually thinking that it's the powder and it's the Quest powder. So, I mean, who knows what they put in. Yeah, no, Quest is bound to maltodextrin. <sighs> of yeah. course it is. Of course yeah. it is. 
And then the other thing, um, just on the MCT, uh, it's, it's fairly interesting because we didn't know this until we got into the lab work of developing the product is like, again, MCT is quite a high level reference to fat. There is multiple of them. Some of those are useless in the context of there's no oxidation in both heart and skeletal tissue. Like for example, C6, where there's six carbons in, in that uh, MCT particular fatty acid, um, there is no oxidation of that on heart and, and muscle. And then if you go up to 12 and 14, well, then you start to have membrane transport. It doesn't move through the membrane yeah. so efficiently. So you have to be quite surgical with this. So is that 8 to 10? <laughs> is, that, is that what we're thinking? Like 8 to 10 is like the sweet yeah, eight spot? 8 to 10. It is. And even those two, like eight, um, the metabolic signatures show that very strong. Like, you know, what's really interesting is that have you ever thought, how come the heart, when you train really hard and go into, say, zone four, zone five, how come you don't get uh, like lactic acid burn in the heart? It's still muscle, right? Um, but the, the heart is extremely efficient at uh, oxidizing fats for fuel. And it so happens that, uh, particularly C8 is extremely now, uh, well, well oxidized, but you say, well, Hey, most people don't take a lot of uh, uh, coconut oil. That's true. But if you look at what happens to when, you know, when you start exercising and the actual fatty tissue begins to release fatty acids into the blood supply, what's released is a long chain fatty acid. And then it obviously gets, you know, move transported through the blood supply comes into uh the muscle cell and in the peroxisome like outside of the mitochondria but inside of the cell uh the first stage of oxidation happens and it actually carves off the very long chain triglyceride and what breaks out c8 yes <laughs> and then that comes across into the mitochondria and um again in both skeletal muscle and heart muscle, you still need L-carnitine. But my point is it can run at very high intensities on that substrate. Um, uh, you know, uh, so, so yeah, it's, it's, there's a lot to it. There's a lot yeah, to it. Yeah, it sounds like it. Um, and I'm unsurprised, um, given just the complexities of your, and how thought out your products are. Cause what I want to also talk about is glutamine. Cause I've seen that in your products. Can we discuss the role of glutamine in just in general? And then of course, how you utilize that? Yeah. I mean, um, I mean, again, with your background, you would well know, of course, in a clinical setting, particularly in highly catabolic patients, you know, long-term bed-bound patients, um, you do see a lot of atrophy, not just of the muscle tissue, but you also see it of the gut tissue, uh, the membrane, et cetera. And glutamine is one of the first lines of treatment uh, to maintain uh, gut epithelium um, uh, membrane integrity, et cetera. Um, and you can, you can test this and it has been done in many studies where you can see the movement of well, what they call LPS, like basically toxins from inside the gut across the blood. Those tight junctions can begin to be get less tight, if you will, easy way to say it. And glutamine is one of the you know first treatments of that. Now it so happens that similar studies have been done on uh, what happens is you increase the heat over extended periods via exercise, 
that has a similar effect on those tight junctions where they begin to open up. And so we, when we first built Train, part of the reason that we wanted to build, you know, lowest inflammatory type product is we wanted to keep the gut lining, you know, healthy. Uh, we wanted to, you know, the fuel of the membrane is glutamine. It's not sugar. It's glutamine. Um, glutamine is actually a very efficient substrate in its own right. Like it can, it does, I should say, it comes into cells, can be oxidized to release um, energy in the same way that glucose and fats are. So we started the use of glutamine for the gut reasons, and it was at a lower dose initially. And now we've this intellectual property that we've just had filed is to be able to offer a higher dose of that as a substrate and why that's interesting is because if you could imagine let's say on the intake of just substrates at large for exercise if you could say 15 to 20 percent of that was a type of a substrate that was not glycogenic or more importantly not lactate producing this gets pretty interesting for an athlete in that i can take energy in but i'm not getting the negative effect of lactate Glutamine and MCTs could give us that. So we've been doing a lot of development around those areas. That's awesome. And do you think, Leighton, is it too much of a stretch to um, expect that taking glutamine bef- during training will have favorable gut-related um, or favorable gut outcomes as well, or is that a little bit of a stretch? Yeah, I, you know, in a true clinical setting, if you had a real gut uh, issue, the type of dosage you would need for that is much higher again. So we're not trying to be a a treatment, a clinical treatment. Uh, What I would say um, is our revival product, like our recovery product, where we go into, you know, really quite more classical clinical dosage levels, um, absolutely could be used for that. Our our rationale for using that is more associated with uh, muscle tissue. I mean, uh, the muscle itself is the is is the producer and the storage pool of glutamine in the, in the body, and it is a pool. And catabolic things, whether that's extreme exercise um, or disease, uh, will draw on that pool, and it gets drawn out of the muscle, and it, it feeds the gut first and foremost. Um, but, um, what we've seen in a number of these studies is the reference to, um, you know, classic, uh, muscle tissue breakdown from exercise, like, you know, creatine kinase, uh, some of the inflammatory mediators like the interleukins, et cetera, that glutamine will have a reductionary effect on those inflammatory mediators. And we tell a lot of customers that are looking at our recovery product to say, Hey, go and trial your classic high intensity track workout that you know you typically have delayed onset muscle soreness on try this and report back to us how the doms was different right with this and you know that's we just show like how dependent and you know how you can offset a lot of that inflammation through glutamine so uh, that's kind of like how we're using it but as i said we're working on some ip that will have glutamine um, as a substrate in a more highly um, 
concentrated form uh, in our training and racing products in the future. Yeah, that is awesome. And then one of the, the last sort of key things that I want to touch on or chat about is, of course, the um, inclusion of ketones in your products, particularly in light of you know the more recent research showing its role with cognitive function sort of later on in exercise. So how do you guys use it? Yeah, I mean, we... Um, Dan and I talked a lot about this before we developed our, let me say it this way, before we thought about where we would use ketones, if at all. And I would say even Dan's still in the spot of like the clarity around its direct response to performance. It's like if you can have athletes that have taken it and perform well well is that a direct is that a is that an association or a direct you know causation um good question um it's hard like there's even studies this last year that came out that suggested in the cycling context that there was a reduction uh, in performance two to four percent um but what is probably far more studied and consistent in terms of of data and research is around its role in recovery and the earlier studies that were done on this, and this is quite some time ago, Mickey, it's not that recent, was showing that some of the biomarkers, again, of muscle tissue breakdown, specifically what was happening, they found that L-leucine was being effectively catabolized, like broken down um, in endurance sport. And they, they saw this in the, in the blood plasma. And then they dosed with uh, ketones, BHB, and they, they saw that that L-leucine level was being reduced. And all that was suggesting was that, you know, after, you know, fats and after carbohydrate, rather than starting to chip away at the muscle tissue itself by dosing with uh, ketones, it would not, you know, use the L-leucine or the, the muscle tissue wouldn't break that down. So, We've put it into the product more in the spirit of uh, muscle tissue recovery. Um, and, you know, I'll be very transparent with you. It's probably one of our number one selling products. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. And I think it's probably um, you're so innovative with your products, Leighton. I don't doubt that the more that research might come to light in terms of the efficacy of them, for that cognitive function during an event, I'm sure that there may well be a further development. Yeah, um, there's the jury's yeah. the jury's still out on that one for sure. There's yeah. more to come. Yeah. Yeah, 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 for sure. So, um, Leighton, why can't we get these in New Zealand? I mean, what's the story? Talk well, to me. Um, I, I'm intrigued uh, with that because Fuel Me, and I'm giving them an ad here, um, they supply it in New Zealand and then – I know there's a lot of customers that use fast gear out of Sydney and Melbourne. Okay, it's good to know. Um, and then we have some customers that just bring it in right from the US. But Fuel Me right there in in New Zealand um, is pulling our products into New Zealand. I mean, let us know if they, the full spread's not there. We'll, we'll we'll work on it. Oh no, that'll <laughs> be my ignorance actually, because normally what I do is I like I text Dan. I'm like, Dan, where do I find S Fuels? And he's like, Nah. <laughs> so maybe you need to. No, they're, yeah, they're 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 there. Amazing. Um, yeah. So, but yeah, I I you know we're still new and yeah. our distribution is still forming for sure. Yeah, for sure. Are there any other like products on the market that you are aware of? Like there probably will be, but I just am so like I just haven't seen anything. 
Yeah, I mean, honestly, I mean, the the, the company I full, you know credit to them that got started probably five years before we did was UCAN. Um, of uh, and they had this, they have the super starch pro- product and we looked at that, um, you know, the, they have a specific IP themselves and respect that our kind of concern or problem with that model is that, uh, if you look at the positioning of that and what they show is that it has a more classic bell curve, slow moving starch across the, across the gut barrier. And as a function of that, a less, you know, uh, blood glucose and insulogenic response. But when you need carbohydrate in high intensity, you're not after a bell curve. You want it yesterday, right? Um, conversely, if you're in zone two, you don't need it. Yeah. You're burning fat. So I, I just functionally felt like the product doesn't really line up in my mind to textbook physiology, which suggests that in low intensity zone two, um, we should be trying to build aerobic and by aerobic, that means with oxygen and with, you know, mostly with fat. And as you get into high intensity, you begin, the body naturally is set up for more glycogenic, you know, substrate use oxidation. So I, I just struggle. And that, you know, when we, 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 tr- we tried it personally before we thought about creating S fuels, but when we tried it, you know, a, a people can just go and look online on social on what the reaction is to the texture. But secondly, physiologically, we feel that it's, it's not set up optimally for athletes. So that's our point of view. But Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's, that's really good insight in terms of the uh, sort of how applicable it is actually for, for um, athletes from your perspective. So, you know, and I, and I mean, there'll be people who love you can, and I have usually yeah. you can, it's great, yeah. you know, but yeah. I understand, yeah. I absolutely understand what you're saying when, when you want something short and sharp, you wanted it, you wanted it yesterday <laughs> when you needed it. So totally. Um, what I love Leighton is that you guys have set up more than just, it's not just, you're not just selling products, you're educating at the same time, like the blogs, the videos, I mean, it's such a, it's like a little hub of education for athletes who want to do it different and, and, um, and you've made it like super accessible as to how to do it. So there's very few questions. If you people go through it, there are very few things that they'll be left wondering because it's all there. And of course, and and you're very accessible as well. Like it feels, you know, like on social media and, and, and things like that, which is always really great. Thank you very much. We, uh, we feel like we never do enough on the education side, so I appreciate that. So, Leighton, is there anything else that you feel people um, uh, need to know or questions? How do they sort of find out more about how they use them in their training and, and things like that? Yeah, we have like just on our website, it's just they have this kind of learn tab at the top of the page and that's got all of our guides in it, Mickey. So we've got like anything from a one pager to a 20 pager. And then we have our, to your point, the videos and the blogs. Uh, you can also go out to YouTube. We have SVLs Live, which is where we have effectively a weekly um, video on some topic. Right now we're doing breakfasts and reactions to different breakfast cereals. And then we're doing recipes for marathon, Ironman, half Ironman and ultra. Um, so, but, and then if people want to just directly engage support at sfuelsgolonger.com, um, and you can find that on the website too. And by all means, email us, happy to help. 
Amazing. Leighton, thank you so much for your time, um, your afternoon, my morning. It was really great. Like It was such a geeky conversation, but I loved it, actually, because it really, like, you did such a great job of explaining the different components and why they're there, um, which is, you know, really sort of satisfied my curiosity. So um, thanks so much. Uh, it's just great to meet and get, uh, you know, talk to you. I see your face on social so much, so we're keen to just talk, you know. Yeah, and, uh, totally. Happy to do it more. Nice. Thanks, Leighton. All right. Thanks, Mickey. Bye. Hopefully you enjoyed that conversation. I really did. And I love hearing how innovative companies are at bringing to the forefront the latest research and the latest design in their sports nutrition products. And I was super pleased to hear that um, S-Fuels was actually available in New Zealand through the Fueled Me website, uh, which we talked about in the, in the podcast. But of course, easily available in States, uh, Australia as well. Next week on the podcast, I speak to Andrew Jagum all about energy drinks. Until then, though, you can catch me over on Facebook at Mickey Willardin Nutrition, over on Instagram, Twitter, and threads, occasionally, at Mickey Willardin, or head to my website, mickeywillardin.com. I will be talking about soon a newly designed webinar all around you making the most of 2024. So that's coming out later on this month in January. So keep an eye out for that on my socials. You will get notified for this free webinar. And uh, Happy New Year. Let's hope 2024 um, has started off a good one. All right, team, have a great week. Talk soon.